Hello, and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall. And I'm Emma Ashford. From the annexation of Crimea and election trolling to island building and the Belt and Road Initiative, the past decade has seen a marked rise in efforts by both Russia and China to control their neighborhoods and to influence politics abroad. In response, the Trump administration's national security strategy has emphasized the reemergence of great power competition as the organizing principle for U.S. foreign policy. But how will international relations change in an era where new actors are challenging the status quo? Where should the United States look for strategic guidance? Uh, Joining us for part two of our two-part series on great power competition to share some of this history and guidance is Stacey Goddard, professor uh, and the incoming director at the Madeleine K. Albright Institute at Wellesley College and author of a wonderful new book on this topic, When Might Makes Right, Rising Powers and World Order. Stacey, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. In lieu of our usual news bits, since uh, this episode is being recorded quite a bit earlier than it's going to air, uh, we're going to we're going to go for a thematic sort of newsy uh, discussion. So, uh, what surprised you, Stacey, uh, most in U.S. foreign policy in 2018? So it's funny because I actually don't think there was much that surprised me in in terms of the events themselves. Right? I mean, if you look at what this administration has done. President Trump has done exactly what he said he was going to do, right? We have a trade war. We knew that was coming. There's the talk of withdrawal from Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria. We knew that was coming, right? We have tension with NATO allies. We knew that was coming, right? So none of this is really surprising in terms of the actual content of the foreign policy. What I do think is surprising to me consistently is a feeling that President Trump and his administration isn't really learning from the feedback they're getting. Um, and there's a certain amount sometimes of almost, I would say, naivete regarding some events. Like they seem, maybe I'm reading this wrong, genuinely surprised that North Korea, for example, is not denuclearizing. I, I don't understand how that surprise is happening. So if if anything, I'm surprised by by their surprise. I'm surprised by their, in some ways, inability to get a handle on on the processes and adjust to events that are actually out there. Yeah, this is something that's actually come up a lot before on the podcast is is not in that exact context, but the fact that sort of the Trump administration doesn't seem to have the usual contingent of advisors, that they don't really have anyone that knows how the government works, that they're actively engaged in running down institutions like the State Department. And it seems like this sort of fits right in that box. Right, right. And, and, you know, I think this is this is one of the things I think it's going to be concerning for the long term, right? Because you're kind of depleting – you're depleting the bench, as it were. And, and the United States foreign policy bench has been so deep these last several decades. All of this expertise that came out of the Cold War, managing the post-Cold War world, where where is this going to go and how is this learning actually going to happen? All right. So the, the surprise of unsurprised, kind of like an inception-like answer there. The surprise <laughs> was in the lack of surprise. Um, so if there were no surprises, what then are we going to look back at 2018 and say, hey, that was one or two of the really important sort of themes or things that actually did happen? Yeah, this is where um, I feel like I'd be a much better political scientist if I could actually predict this. As I look back at 2018, my overwhelming question is, at what point do you look at what we call the liberal international order and say that's that's not going to be rebuilt, right? So the, these are these are to me are the big trends, um, both of 2018 and 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 going forward. Um, and the two things that stand out there are obviously uh, the the summer meetings, July meeting with with NATO allies, and as well as as moving away um, from a lot of the trade agreements, right? So in terms of both the security component 
of these liberal institutions and the economic component and the United States' willingness to step back. Um, and again, I don't think this is the first time this has happened and we can argue about the value of the order. I would say if you, even if you don't value the order, valuing alliances is, is probably a good thing. Valuing trade is, is, is a good thing. But uh, the question is, where is that threshold? What is the tipping point? And is it just at this point gone? So yeah. 2018 may prove, in hindsight, to be a really important yeah. year, but we we won't know quite yet. Right. Yeah, the foot out the door, but where did it take us? That's right. Um, yeah, really good, okay. really good. Okay, and so you know, while we're looking ahead, then our last news-ish bit uh, is for you to make a bold prediction for 2019. So this killed me, right? Because I, you 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 would talk to me about this, and I'm like, I have a bold prediction, and then the last two days destroyed the boldness of my prediction. Um, and it was actually thinking about the turn towards Iran, right? Um, I think that, I know, I know it's no longer bold, but, and, and, and then the possibility of having to deal with Iran and North Korea simultaneously, right? And I think that now we're going to see a president who's going to find himself ever more constrained um, by the uh, coming of the, of, the, of the Democratic House. He's going to be really interested in finding that space in foreign policy. Um, and I think that, Given, obviously, John Bolton, Pompeo, right, there's there's going to be a configuration of actors there who are going to want to be more aggressive in either of those two arenas. Yeah, I mean, so whether or not it's bold at this point, yeah. we can debate, but I think you're absolutely right. And I, and I think to go back to your first point that you made, we could see this coming a long way away. Like if you were actually paying attention to Trump's advisors and what they were saying, this was visible a year or so ago, but it does look like 2019 is the year where it's going to actually happen. Exactly. It's a, it, it's been visible. I mean, it's absolutely, it, it's been out there, right? But now we're seeing the configuration of actors. Right. Um, in terms of the, the 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 appointments, we're seeing the configuration of constraints on the domestic front that I really think could push this forward. So, all right, that's 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 bold. I'll, I'll give you that. I'll g- all right. How, how about well, terrifying? Terrifying. <laughs> yeah, b- bold and its terrifyingness. All right. Okay. Well, <laughs> let's move on to our our main topic then. Uh, Great and, powers and, with nuclear weapons. Oh yeah, it's <laughs> less terrifying, isn't it? Yeah, sure. Um, but let's start, Stacey, with some background uh, and context. Um, you know, why did you write the book? What's the puzzle you're, you're tackling and, and why why now? Why today? So I wrote the book. I mean, the, so the central puzzle of the book is why it is that great powers accommodate some rising powers and choose to contain and confront some others. Um, and, you know, obviously, I think the, the contemporary importance is, is, is pretty obvious. Um, I was very interested in the rise of China, which we can, you know, talk about uh, throughout. But I was also have been really surprised and, and amazed by the resilience of the idea that all rising powers, all power transitions lead to conflict. And th- this simply isn't the case. And we don't just have to pull up the one case of the United States and, and, and Britain to find this. There was a combination of rising Prussia and Germany for several decades. Um, Japan obviously becomes a very different case in the 1930s, but there's a lot of accommodation of a rising Japan in the, in the early 20th century. So I really wanted to talk about this variation. Um, and just kind of as a, as, a, as a side note, you know, if I was going to do the contemporary hook, it's obviously China. But I have to admit part of it was becoming really fascinated um, with the case of Bismarck's Prussia, right? Here we have um, a leader who basically makes it clear that Prussia is going to expand, that it's going to unify Germany, that it's going to become a hegemon in the middle of a continent in the 19th century. And eventually Britain and Russia kind of say, okay, we're going we're to let that happen. And that just seems so puzzling to me. 
um, how that was actually accomplished. So kind of being able to dig into this historical cases to find relevance for contemporary events as well. So this is basically the flip side of our last episode where we talked with Josh Shiffredson and uh -huh. he was primarily concerned with the sort of the intentions and the actions of the rising powers. You're looking at the, the intentions and the actions of the, the powers that are already at the top. Precisely. Precisely. And I got really interested too because it seems like there are always these, always these moments where the great power gets what's going to happen. And they actually seem to get it pretty early on. You know, Britain is talking, for example, about a rising United States right after the War of 1812. I mean, in some ways, that that's ridiculous. So they get what's going to happen, and yet they're making these decisions to allow and sometimes even facilitate rises, right? So, so that that was a really, really fascinating part to me. It's kind of like when you watching a horror movie and you realize the person doesn't get it yet. Yeah, get out like, of the house. Dude, you're in a horror movie. You don't do that. <laughs> but but what you're saying is actually great powers tend to know they're in some kind of movie mm -hmm. fairly early on. But but the question is, how do they make that decision? Yeah. So so at, at the core of this dynamic that uh, is is how great powers assess the intentions mm -hmm. of, of these rising powers. And before we get to your argument, I want you do a great job in the book of, of sort of outlining the literature and the two sort of major camps that people uh, sort of lean on Thanks. to explain this. So, so maybe just outline those first so we can contrast those with your argument. Um, you know, so I'd say, you know, th there are really kind of three schools of thought, too, I spent a lot of time with. Um, one of them is that just intentions don't matter, right? That 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 states are just going to look to capabilities, and, and and that to my mind is just some people might want that to want that to be true, think that should happen, but that that's not what happens in great power politics. They spend a lot of time thinking, talking, trying to ascertain intentions. So there are really two schools of thoughts that I talk about in the book, and I, and I label them the politics of harm and the politics of interest. And here the idea is trying to assess whether or not a rising power is either going to, A, use that might to harm a great power, right? And you might think, you know, are they actually showing they might take offensive action? Are they actually showing they might invade territory? All of those types of signals a state might uh, send. And then second of all, um, the questions of a politics of interest. What are the chances that the rising power you're looking at are going to adopt intentions that are basically commensurate with your own, right? Um, so if it's a democratic rising power, you know, it is a great power, you might say, oh, this is actually going to work for this. If it's a capitalist rising power, you're interested in free trade, you can say, okay, they're going to really want to cooperate with us. So the idea is that these great powers are looking for some sort of signals in order to be able to decide, are you revolutionary, are you going to try to overturn a system, or are you have these more limited aims that we can kind of fold into the system? And even if eventually you are a great power, even greater than we are, that's actually going to benefit us as well. What struck me, generally what I would say is I, I, I was completely satisfied with the argument that this is what states are, great powers are trying to figure out about rising powers. They want to know if they are dealing with a revolutionary power or a limited aims power. They want to know whether or not they can cooperate and they are looking to these signals. What really I felt was lacking is a discussion of how it is great powers do that, right? And there was almost this sense that somehow great powers can just look out and watch what rising powers are doing. And then make a decision. And it, it just doesn't seem to work that way. And the easiest example in some ways is look right now with China in the South China Seas or with One Belt, One Road, right? If I put 10 China experts in a room and said, what are the intentions? We'd probably get at least three or four different answers, right? Because the bottom line is it's not, it's not clear what those actions mean. Right? And this is true historically. The United States goes into Florida and Britain's like, what does that mean? Does it mean they want Florida or does it mean they want to rule the Caribbean? Because one of these is a problem for us. That's the Caribbean one. The other one is, okay, fine, take Florida. It's fine. So trying to figure out what this means, what these signals are actually are suggesting about intentions is a really difficult process. 
So this isn't even like an imperfect information problem. This is like how looking at the actions a state is taking, can we judge them? Exactly. And I like the way, I really like the way you phrase it. It's not just, oh, we need more information. It's not about information so much. It, it, it's about almost about meaning, right? Trying to figure out what, what does this mean and, 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 and what reasons do you have for doing this? Because you're trying to see a completely indeterminate future. Yeah, and this is a very timely kind of an argument to make, I think, given at, you know, at the risk of talking about domestic politics for just a second, um, you know, that is sort of the the problem du jour in American politics is looking at the same exact set of facts and and the two parties coming to wildly different conclusions about what they mean. Right. Right. Whether it's the problem of immigrants, is it a security issue or is it a humanitarian issue? Mm -hmm. Depends. Is a wall a reasonable security uh, effort or is it an immoral act of aggression against Mexico? Right. Depends. Right. And so and so you're saying here that great powers. Are are basically face an interpretation challenge. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 I think the comparison here is interesting, right? If if you can develop, and I'm not even going to call it a consensus, right? Because it's not a consensus where everybody agrees exactly on the strategy. But if you can kind of develop a consensus around the idea of who is what is this problem, who is this rising power, um, then you can begin to have the argument about policy, right? And I think what's interesting in some of these cases, you get so little agreement that what you see is actual paralysis, right? Almost just a lack of being able to move forward, which I think actually ports really well onto domestic policy today. Right, right. So you make, I think, a really great case in in the book that it's the interpretation, um, it's not enough to look at capabilities or actions. Like those are part of the discussion, but that you also need to look at rhetoric mm -hmm. and that great powers actually rely on the rhetoric of rising powers to help with this game of interpretation, what do you mean? What, what does that mean exactly? Well, if, if you want to think about it, um, there really is a, a kind of an individual level, what we do every day as humans analogy, right? When you break a rule, right, and somebody else is watching you, if you nobody sees fine, right? But if you break a rule and somebody else is watching you, what do you do? You give a reason for it. Right. Um, and that reason more than is not usually I broke that rule and, you know, because I don't care. Right. Because then, you know, you're going to get punished if that happens. Right. So you try to say, yes, I, I might have broken the rule, but these are the legitimate reasons for which I broke that rule. Yes, I, I might have hit somebody, but it was in self-defense. Right. Um, so so that's the type of processes that I'm talking about. Um, rising powers, to my mind, are likely to break some rules. Right? Because they have interests that go against the existing great powers in the international system. So they're operating within the system of rules that were set up by another group of powers. And they want to change some of that, right? They might want to expand a little into territory, reform some economic rules, change political institutions, right? And they might be willing to break some rules to do this. But what they don't want are great powers then mobilizing against them, right? Because that that's something that's actually going to, to, to be problematic for them, particularly when they're pretty weak. So what they end up doing is they basically explain, yeah, we did this, but this is why it's completely consistent with these existing norms and rules of the international system. And great powers are watching this because they believe that gives a signal of whether or not that rising power in the future is going to become revolutionary and try to overturn rules or whether or not they're willing to basically work within the system. Right? So that's the type of rhetoric I'm talking about. I talk a bit in the book about why that why that's important, right? Basically, a great power looks and says, oh, well, if you're using the rules of the international system, you're not trying to rile up your population for expansion. Okay, that, that's a pretty credible uh, 
signal. It also helps it goes to that thing of uncertainty. At the very least, it maintains some uncertainty, right? So if you can't all pull together in the, in, in, within the great power to say, we need to adopt this costly strategy of balancing and confrontation, it kind of keeps just allies and coalitions wedged apart for a little while longer. Still sounds like this would be really difficult to judge, though. So the, the difference between a great power sort of challenging some parts of the system and trying to, or a rising power, trying to see sort of where the limits are, perhaps making excuses when they accidentally go over the line, it seems like that would be very similar even in rhetoric to a rising power that's sort of pretending they're going over the line accidentally, but they're going to push past the line. Well, that becomes the really puzzle here, right? Because why do they believe it? And, you know... You know, at, at, at the risk, there, there, there's always a thing like, don't don't go to Hitler, but let, let's go to Hitler for a moment. <laughs> um, I mean, that's certainly somebody who's consistently crossing lines, consistently giving reasons, right? German, Germany was wronged by the Treaty of Versailles. Germany wants to be a good European. And really, if you just give Germany a little territory, Germany will be a good European. It really is a puzzle. Why, why is it that great powers are likely to believe this? Right? So I also have a story in here about the level of investment a great power has. In the system itself, right, and and uh, even at one point call it a window of vulnerability or a window of gullibility, right? A willingness to believe it because you really want to believe that this rising power is going to be a be a help to you, right? So, so I want to just have you expand on that because yeah. when you're reading this through, and I and I've I've written about a public opinion and interpretation right. myself, so I'm very sympathetic to these kinds of arguments, but. At the IR level, you run into such a great wall of of writing for decades that talk is cheap. Yeah. And that literally nothing a rising power says should be taken at face value. That um, th it's, it, it takes an extra effort to convince me that there is a strategy that can be successful for a rising power to use rhetoric that you know people are going to be judging very sharply. But you have a theory about this. I mean, this is what legitimation theory is. So right. explain to us sort of what, under what conditions is a rising power actually going to be successful in right. using rhetoric to to defoil sort of a, a great power's counter-mobilization? And I think this is th th this is a really important point because because part of the, the argument is that this, this isn't easy, right? Um, and this isn't easy for a few reasons. One of the reasons it's not easy is why would anybody believe you? Right. And, and, and the second reason this isn't easy is because you really are trying to balance these multiple audiences simultaneously. Right. So I say that the ability of a rising power to do this is actually it, it's dependent on what might actually be very rare conditions. Um, and one of which is a certain amount of not just uncertainty about the rising power's intentions, but really just kind of a sense of we can't even quite figure out what this rising power's interests are going to be. Right. That the actors you're dealing with, it you really feel like it could go either way, All right? So, so let me give you a few examples uh, of these actors to concretize it. Going back to Bismarck here, right? Bismarck's a really interesting character. Prussia is a really interesting character. They are, on the one hand, kind of the bat one of the bastions of conservatism in Europe as they're beginning to rise, right? So when they speak to conservative principles, they can be pretty credible. They also have this whole German nationalist movement. That's brewing, um, you know, within obviously the other German states, but within Prussia itself. So they can also speak credibly to that, right? So what they end up doing is they kind of vacillate back and forth between that, or sometimes they even make appeals simultaneously, right? And again, it's not every actor that can do that, right? If you are just everybody knows you're a nationalist, right? You can't suddenly start pretending 
that you're a conservative, right? But if you're in between those, if you have credible ties, you can keep making plays either way. And that's – if you want to think about what rhetoric's doing then, it's not just persuasion. It's just really stoking uncertainty. Yeah. Uncertainty manipulation, right. Right. right? right. And as you say, that's not easy under a lot of conditions because I think there are some sort of great power, rising power pairs where the great power knows immediately – whether right or wrong, what the answer is. Exactly, exactly. And 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 sometimes, yeah, I, I like we said there too, because sometimes they know they know immediately, but they're not right, right. And I think this actually happens early Japan, and again, not talking Japan, nineteen thirty six on, but talking Japan, Manchuria, nineteen thirty one. The United States decides that this is a revolutionary power, arguably while things are still domestically up in the air. Right, so these stories can get set even without there being kind of a fixed intention. Yeah, and I might have missed this in the in the in the book, yeah. but there's a difference between saying this is how great powers do it, and this is the right way for uh, great powers yeah. to do it. And I wanted to just ask you about that because this seems possibly like a dumb way to do it, like viewed from a certain mm -hmm. angle, which is to say words are cheap. I expect people to lie for strategic reasons. Um, uh, how much should I trust this kind of a thing? So this is what I would say about it, is I think we have to break it into a couple of different questions, right? On the one hand, there's the question of should policymakers rely on what others are saying to make decisions about intentions? And I guess my question would then be, well, what can they rely on, right? Because part of this is not that they're doing this and they're not paying any attention to, to what the state's actually doing, right? They're looking at the expansion. They're looking at more aggressive actions, right? But part of it is that what I'm saying is most of these signals themselves are so indeterminate, right, that you then have to look at what states are saying in order to judge, right? In some ways, it's just an insolvable problem. But this is what I would add on to it. So that's – policymakers have to do it. What troubles is me is then why can't they accept the uncertainty in what they're doing? Right. And I don't know if we want to say this is a flaw in the policy realm or if this is frankly just human nature. We don't like operating on uncertainty. We're always trying to resolve that uncertainty. Right. So I think then there's this, this, this proclivity to decide that, oh, now that we've heard this, we can become more certain whether or not it's revolutionary or cooperative. And I think that in, 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 in I can't say a perfect world, but in a better world, a better mode of policymaking, be like, we need to come back and revisit this. And we need to accept that the cone of uncertainty on this is always going to be huge. Yeah. So I was going to ask you some of the, the takeaways for policymakers, but I think that's a big one, right? Yeah. Is know, know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. to, to borrow or to borrow Rumsfeld, I guess, you know, know the unknown unknown. Exactly. Exactly. So what if uh, you have a bunch of case studies in the book? Which of them do you think is most relevant for policymakers today? Oh gosh, that that is a that is a fascinating one. Um, well, actually, d d if you don't mind me picking two, I, I mean, I actually think that the case of Prussia and the case of Japan offer two very different. I mean, they're very different outcomes, but two different lessons, right? Um, you know, the, the the case of Prussia, I actually think that ultimately. Um, the European powers were right to manage it the way they did and decide that Prussia was a limited aims revisionist. But I think what that case tells you is that there can be – you don't want narratives – again, you don't want this rhetoric to settle. You don't want to decide you're always certain, right? Because I I stopped this case before Bismarck is out of office in the 1890s and before Wilhelm II, right? And I think they 
because they decide that Germany is generally a limited power, they miss the turn towards more unlimited aims later on. So on the one hand, to realize that just because you've decided that a rising power is doing all right doesn't mean that domestic circumstances, for example, aren't going to propel it forward. Likewise, the, the the other case here, I think, is Japan. And this is where I was talking about just the, the mis- go back to that question of misplaced certainty, right? That even when you start seeing rising powers adopt aggressive action and more nationalist rhetoric and more revolutionary rhetoric, because Japan's rhetoric isn't really revolutionary, even beginning in 1934, that don't let that cloud your judgment so much that you miss opportunities to shape the path of where that power is going. I I think the United States actually missed opportunities to potentially still shore up some moderate factions that were in Japan at that moment or find places to bargain rather than end up in a massive two-front war. Um, basically, by the by, nineteen forty, nineteen forty one. Right. Yeah. So, but does that sort of bias your strategic choice? Then, I mean, if if there's two possible paths the rising powers could be taking, mm-hmm. accommodating or you know, sort of revolutionary, um, and you can't really be certain within any reasonable parameters, then you gotta assume the worst, roughly. And you know, I mean, does I would just, I mean, I guess my take on mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. the U.S. sort of strategic debate is that that's exactly what happens: is that we have a debate over Soviet intentions, but you can't just, you can't make policy on the on the wishful thinking case. That's just never going to happen, right? Right. And same I think is now emerging with China today, which is well, we don't know, but you got to prepare for the worst. But I, I I think the problem there is that pre- preparing for the worst, right? Preparing for the revolutionary is just so extraordinarily costly. Right, so I even think in the case of the Soviet Union, and 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 you know, not not to be completely historically oriented here, but thinking back, for example, to to, to the Kennan model, right, as opposed to the Nixon model, right, Kennan actually wasn't a prepare for the worst, right. Kennan was kind of a let's shore up, right, let's make sure we can be flexible, let's actually decide where it is the United States should be thinking about uh, as their primary areas of national interest, right, and then we're, we can kind of have a holding action from there. Right, so I think it takes a while to actually turn into the let's assume the worst, right? And and I think in many ways the let's assume the worst means that any time you begin to see actions, even in even in areas that are not necessarily of United States core interests, the United States starts to overreact because it sees as well. Here it comes, right? Whether or not that's a manifestation of the domino theory or, or in the Cold War or something else, you begin to read everything as the beginning of some sort of revolutionary push forward, and that I actually that's extremely extremely problematic, right? That's a waste of resources. Well, that's sort of a myths of empire kind of exactly. a problem that you exactly. end up in, which is uh, there are people in your country who can get worried about anything going on in the rest of the mm-hmm. world and, and attempt to inflate that threat into right. a, the next boogeyman. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this actually provides us a great pivot into China that I'd like to talk about for a couple of minutes. Um, I mean, really, Trevor and I have written on this, and I think what we see developing here in Washington in the policy community is a consensus that China is an assertive rising power, that they are not a, they are not a status quo rising power. Do, do you agree with that? And, and if so, how did we get to that point? So if I if I could set a little bit of a different baseline on it, right? I think it's I mean to call China assertive. There, there's a question of what do we mean by that, and I I think what's actually thrown Washington D.C. off in this was too much of a commitment to the idea that existing liberal institutions were going to be a constraint on China, and that somehow these were going to change China's interests entirely. 
right? And that China was going to be completely constrained by the rules, right? And and, and I think that that was a real problem in United States foreign policymaking, right? I, I, no, China is a rising power. It does have its own interest. It wants to do things that are in line um, with its own model of economic growth. It has a very sincere belief of what it owns and complained sovereignty in the South China Seas that are incommensurate with U.S. interests, right? So I think in some ways, China has absolutely gotten more assertive. But in some ways, I think the surprise in that has to do with kind of just just, just a misjudgment of, of what these institutions are doing. And I think that a lot of policymakers missed that China was being very ambiguous about what it was doing the entire time. But let's tell you what concerns me about, and th this is why I, I wanted to set the baseline just a little differently, was that the idea of China becoming more assertive to then flip it to now China's becoming more assertive. Maybe it is revolutionary. Maybe it wants its own entire system. I actually don't think, and perhaps I'll be proven wrong, I don't think China knows what its own intentions are yet, right? And I actually think China's intentions are going to change markedly because it's going to have to respond 10 years down the line to what it's building, for example, on One Belt, One Road. It's going to have to respond to unintended consequences that come from expansion into the South China Seas, right? So I would actually say that there's still a great deal of uncertainty about what China is going to do. And I'm not even talking about China's domestic system yet. And so if the United States gets too locked into it again, and, and again, I'm not saying you you that 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 you don't think about building up allies and defining your core interests there and it's best not to assume that China's simply going to cooperate with institutions, but you don't then need to rush to China's actually developing this incredibly expansionist program. Well, there's a feedback problem too, right? Exactly. So Chinese rhetoric presumably is shaped by our rhetoric, which is shaped by their... So, so you can see how you get a feedback loop here. Does that something that you see in your cases? Oh, absolutely, right? Because then if you start actually then calling this a revolutionary power and calling it a power that that's, can't be incorporated into the international system, right? Then the rising power itself... And a lot of it, remember, they're also playing to this domestic audience, begins to say, well, if we're going to be actually be excluded from this, then all we can actually do is turn to, for example, more nationalist rhetoric to mobilize our domestic population in order to get this done, right? So that feedback can really lead to these type of expansionist policies. Well, I think, you know, one of the interesting things that the China case really raises for me is, I alluded to this before, but, um, you know, once we get into the constructivism, it's it's interpretation all the way down. So, um the process by which there is a competition in the United States to dominate the interpretation of China, right? That's, yes. You know, your book points at the need for that next book. How how do those games get won? How do they get played and won? And then just not here, of course, but in Japan, in mm -hmm. Taiwan, in Korea, in Russia, in India, right? Everyone else who cares about China is also having presumably the same exact kind of process going on, right? But dominated, I'm. I'm guessing, by very different domestic dynamics. And if you sort of look at how Israel interprets Iran all the mm -hmm, time, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's clearly not following the same exact dynamics of rhetoric interpretation that the United States is or that Russia is or anyone else. So how do you – who's who are the teams? Why, I mean, do you have anything to say about sort of the domestic side of this for the China debate? I think I do. But I also think here I need to, get, to, to give a bit of a shout out to one of my co-authors, Ron Krebs, who has a great book on narratives of national security. And one of the things that he does is talk about the ways in which narratives of threats and national interests get settled or unsettled over time, right? How do it is that you build those consensus around this is really a threat? He has a great Cold War study for example. And I think this is precisely what's going on 
now, right? Um, so if you actually think about, you know, there was there's a fair amount of uncertainty. I think I'll actually, um, you know, the the the, the China it, the engagement crowd had the upper hand for a very long time. That China is going to cooperate. That you know the international uh, order is easy to join, hard to overturn. Um, and now what we're beginning to see is the ascendancy, both because I think. Um, you know, particular actors, some of Marco Rubio, are more dominant, um, have more dominant roles. China's own actions are obviously part of this as well. But you can see the frustration of, of um, some China specialists, Michael Swain among them, for example. It's like this: that we've suddenly have this narrative. Not much has changed in what China's doing, right? What you actually see is more vacillation back and forth in what China's doing. But this is now beginning to get settled, and a real concern on this part of those coalitions. Yeah. And so, I mean, I wonder, do you see with the just the China case in particular yeah. that that other nations are coming to very different conclusions about China? Or, or I mean, that's another thing, Emma, your feedback loop point. I mean, our di- dialogue obviously influences those of our allies and, and others around the world. It's not, you know, in lockstep, I wouldn't think, but there's probably some interaction there. But not always either, right? Because we've seen so many US allies go and join like the Asian investment at the infrastructure bank. Uh, so so it's not entirely driven by the US. Well, no, no, right? I, I absolutely not. And I think that, you know, to 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 move away um, you know, from 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 rhetoric for a moment, you know, these are these are states that are ultimately trying to develop strategies that allow them ideally to straddle the United States and China, right? That they don't necessarily want to be um, in China's sites, right? So not surprisingly, I, I think that, you know, you'll see almost a mix of narratives about what China is within these states, right? So an idea that, for example, China is still, generally speaking, a cooperative economic power, um, but still hoping to align with the United States um, as, as as an ally there. I mean, obviously, I think that the biggest shift um, in, in narrative has been within Japan, Right. And and increasingly discussions there about the nature of the threat that China poses. Um, and that's always obviously been really explosive around issues um, in the East China Sea uh, with the Senkaku Dayu Islands dispute. Right. That always gets nationalist narratives going. But I think we're seeing this broaden out even more into general security environment. All right. Last question. If China does seek to be a status quo-ish, mm-hmm. you know, non-revolutionary rising power. What does it need to tell the United States? What would be the winning rhetorical approach, roughly speaking? Is there something they could be doing more of to make the United States more comfortable right now? So I think, and without having thought very deeply of the probability of this, um, that... So China, I think, did a very good job with One Belt, One Road of trying to telegraph that this was meant to be complementary to the existing international order, right? The kind of, we're going to provide the hardware infrastructure, the United States is going to provide the software in terms of trade agreements, open borders, and and whatnot. The question is the extent to which China and the United States would be willing, able to come to those types of complementary narratives about the South China Seas, right? Um, China, for a long time, um, was beginning to invest more. I don't know if you, you, you've read, in, there's interesting stuff out there about China engaging in, in lawfare, right? Um, teams of international legal specialists that could basically begin to call a strategy around China as respecting the law of the sea, 
and actually folding the South China Sea's issue into that, right? So I think that if China begins to move towards those type of explanations, right, and kind of grasp that, and to be clear that the United States continues to care about those type of explanations, which is a little bit up in the air, that would actually create some sort of space for, for, for limited movement. And I'm not saying agreement all the time because they would still be tussling on those grounds, right? But that would be basically, we're going to expand, but we're not going to do it in a revolutionary way. I think the more that this becomes the rhetoric of core interests and nationalism, China is a great power, so it has a, you know, kind of a right to exert almost sole influence in that. That's the type of revolutionary movement that makes both the United States and its allies very nervous. Right. I don't know how you say Lebensraum in Chinese, but that's <laughs> that's a word we don't want to learn. Exactly. That's what you're saying. Exactly. I, I think that is a an excellent sort of bold, uh, not prediction, but a, but a great framework for, for our listeners to sort of keep in mind as we watch this all unfold. Mm -hmm. I think that is a really smart uh, set of thoughts about this. So I think we're going to end it on, on that note. Th Stacey, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, pleasure. Uh, thanks, um, uh, everybody, for listening. And if you like the show, please uh, don't be afraid to leave us a great review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 